listening to Sharp Scratch, episode 51, Queerness in Medical School. This is a podcast brought to you by the BMJ and sponsored by Medical Protection, where we bring together medical students, junior doctors and expert guests to discuss all the things that you need to know to be a good doctor, but that you might not get taught at medical school. I'm Nikki, and I'm the editorial scholar here at the BMJ, and I'm also a medical student at the University of Manchester. My pronouns are she and her, and I'm excited to be joined today by my good friends Callum and Cody. Do you both want to introduce yourselves, Callum? Hi, I'm Callum. I'm final year medical student at University of Southampton. I use he and they pronouns. I was the Clegg Scholar last year at the BMJ and I'm just back here on an elective. Nice to have you with us, Callum. And Coyote? Hi, I'm Coyote. I am a fourth year medical student at the sunniest city in Scotland. Saying it again, this is actually sunny today, (laughs) Dundee. And my pronouns are he, him. Great to have you with us as well. Um, and I'm also delighted to be joined today by our ex- expert guest, Dr. Joseph Hartland. Joe, do you want to introduce yourself? Oh, expert, that's some pressure. <laughs> uh, yeah, so my name's Joe. Um, I use he, him. Uh, and yeah, I'm a doctor. I work at the University of Bristol Medical School, um, where I am the Deputy Education Director for Student Equality, Diversity and Inclusion. And I run our 3D helical theme, which is disability, diversity and disadvantage. And is about kind of bringing in marginalised voices into our curriculum. Today we wanted to have a conversation about queerness at medical school and we thought that it would be important to have a chat about how we think that queerness is seen within medicine and how it's impacted by medical school or our careers. So pretty big question, so how is queerness seen at medical school? But Callum, how do you think that it's seen or defined within medicine? What do you think is the general perception? I think the first thing to think about is that it is um, it depends on whose queerness it is, because I feel like sort of my queerness and a more feminine queerness or persons of colour queerness are seen very differently. And then I think coming off that, you, you always get this sort of slight feeling of, of there's a little bit of fear or there's a little bit of misunderstanding or a little bit of hostility just because people aren't really comfortable with talking about queerness as a concept or as part of someone's identity. They just want everyone to sort of fit into their boxes. And then I, and I think the box which they then put us in to make themselves more comfortable with that always comes back to like sex and sexual health and stuff. So that's the only time I've really heard people talk about what queerness means. And I just find that really reductive as to like who I am. That's really interesting. Joe. I noticed you nodding along there. <laughs> Um, what what are your thoughts? I, I guess I take two approaches to this. The first is that I think queerness in medical schools is often seen through a lens where I suppose my fear is that it's seen through a lens of unprofessionalism. So that to be kind of outward and queer uh, can be seen as unprofessional by some clinicians, perhaps some of our older clinicians or consultants, um, but not necessarily those groups. It's, I think that applies kind of across the board. Um, I was nodding especially because of the reflection about where does it appear in curriculums? And often where it appears in curriculums is around uh, the idea of sexual health and kind of disease. And that tends to be where it's brought up. Um, it's very rarely do we see queerness represented in terms of families or kind of loving relationships. And I suppose that's one of the things that I'm quite passionate about, which is why I was kind of nodding about how do we get those stories into medical education? Because those are the stories that are out there. And I suppose the 
final thing that I would think of in that is when I look at our curriculum, and I do things such as query in the curriculum and I say to people, uh, let's try and make this case because we have case-based learning. Let's try and make this case about this person. And I say, let's make them um, a gay, trans, black man. Often people respond with kind of like, ooh, like, do you think that's going to be too complicated, though? I'm like, well, well, no, that's a real person. That's a real thing. Those are real lies. Um, but uh, And it's not said in, in a cruel way, but I think it doesn't fit with, like, the kind of the main narrative of, like, queerness in kind of uh, a lot of a lot of social circles. So a lot of my colleagues um, are straight and they consume queerness through popular media and that tends to be things like RuPaul's Drag Race. So when we have something where, say, the cis, gay, white male is represented in the curriculum, that's queerness ticked, right? That's it done. Uh, and then we lose those other stories. Yeah, that's really interesting. And also, you've just confirmed that you are the perfect expert guest for this episode, as you've brought up <laughs> lots of the things that are on my list to discuss, such as professionalism and the curriculum. Um, so, Kirdi, I know you've been on Sharp Scratch before to talk about um, concepts of professionalism, and it's something that we love to talk about because I think it is a huge part of the Hidden curriculum. But what are your experiences? What do you think? Do you think queerness is seen as unprofessional, as Joe was suggesting? It's a difficult question for me because I, I don't know, it's a question of what is actually queerness? Like, I don't know, is there like an office somewhere deciding what is queer? And what is <laughs> like, I, I, I don't know. Um, but I would say um, for me and just like based on my experiences and like my friends' experiences and stuff, like I've had friends being told that they're, that the shirts they wore in the Noski is too flamboyant. Like I've... I made a conscious effort to um, go through my blonde phase before I started clinical years because I was like, oh, I don't want to be seen as unprofessional. <laughs> but I don't really think um, dyeing my hair blonde is like going, is like super queer or anything. Like loads of people have blonde hair anyway. But <laughs> there is, th there was that worry that, oh, like, will I be judged negatively for this? So I, I don't know, I, I feel like queerness is, I feel like you're, you're the only person can can, that can decide what is queer and what isn't, like to you, because I don't know, queerness is on a spectrum, like and anything could be taken in or out of it. So yeah, I could go into like a long spiel about societal norms and everything, but I don't, I, I don't know if we have time to go into all <laughs> my thoughts about it so i'm going to stop talking <laughs> just now the interesting thing for me is that you said like how individual queerness is and i completely agree with that and i think the problem is that doesn't translate into medical school or medicine i think we are seen in such a rigid way that it means that all the individualistic things which we get to celebrate and all the sort of the breadth of the culture which we have to celebrate just doesn't come into the conversation yeah Definitely. Like, I, I think I've said on the podcast before, like, I do, like, my own little um, up yours to society by wearing colourful socks. Like, <laughs> yeah, ha, 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 ha. You can't see my socks are rainbow-coloured, but they're not black. Hmm. So, like, that, that is, like, my own version of protest. And I make sure that I wear my patent leather red shoes on the wards as well, just to be like, 
I'm I'm going to be able to dress in whatever way I want. They're still shoes. It's still very much professional. And I'm making sure that I am a visible person that other queer people will feel comfortable coming up to and say, oh, I recognize you. I see you, girl. Like, yeah, yes, it's fine. Yeah, just to pick up there on what you're both saying about what queerness actually is, I was wondering whether do we need to set like a definition for it or is it like KOD was saying, like it's on a spectrum and there is no definition that sort of does it justice? For me, it's it's interesting being on this podcast because I uh, tweeted about this recently and I was saying we had a teaching on LGBTQ plus health for our year two medical students um, run by... Uh, a friend and someone who works in the third sector organisation who's who's trans. And it was a really interesting morning and it got a lot of kind of, a lot of conversations happening with our students. But one of the things I reflected on during it was that I said to the students that I identify as queer. And then afterwards I was thinking, well, actually, a lot of the time I struggle with that because sometimes I don't know if I'm like queer enough to call myself queer. Uh, and that like, that worries me a little bit in, in LGBT uh, Q plus circles because um, like I'm not hugely into kind of drag or drag culture um, which often like for some reason makes dating really difficult don't know why uh, but like especially white gay men seem to really not enjoy the fact that I'm I'm not a huge drag fan I don't know I sometimes I feel like my queer label isn't there for some reason so it's interesting being here and in this space and talking about it because I don't know how much I count myself as an expert on, on, on queerness uh, and actually what queerness is. I suppose it might be worth exploring it though because we might have people who are listening who this is some of the first time they've heard this word used outside of potentially a slur or a hate term. So, you know, for some listeners, this might be really new and they might not realise that the Q uh, in our kind of alphabet mafia stands for for queer uh, and questioning, but for queer. And so, yeah, I think probably that is a good thing. I think thinking about what is queerness might be a useful idea just for a few minutes. So Callum, Coyote, do you have any reflections on... So in true Coyote fashion, when I was prepping for the <laughs> episode, I did, I, I did Googling and Amazing. stuff. Amazing. And um, <laughs> my Word document that I created yesterday says that queerness is the state or condition of being strange and I wasn't going to go into this earlier but I've decided you know what I am going to go into (laughs) and I feel like so the definition and like the boundaries of queerness I think it changes and it shifts and the reason I'm going into it is because Joe you brought it up um, um, quite perfectly that you don't necessarily like see yourself as queer and like like you're not sure if you fit into that spectrum and i think thankfully as society has progressed um queer people or people who were previously queer are now being normalized in society so it's not unusual to see uh um a gay white man or like in 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 like public spheres like it's it's not it's not unusual to like see those things whereas it is it is still quite unusual to see like i don't know i'm thinking for some reason i've got mnek in my head um to, to see like this really super tall um black man who's a musician with well he used to have dreads and um 
um he's not like the stereotypical like oh i am super ripped and stick thin like version of like queerness that people have come to accept so so i so i think i, I think the boundaries like shift with time so think into to my medical school and the faculty and like our queer representation i would say like yes we do have some queer representation but our queer representation is someone that is still very much like an, an acceptable face of the institution palatable. which is some yeah palatable face yeah. Of, the, of the institution which is something i've always struggled with because i know I've, I've always felt like i'm a palatable black guy like i'm like relatively ish quote marks well spoken and i don't dead say things angry and i smile a lot can i ask in your in your googling did you come across across the academic idea of queer theory no i didn't i i I don't like to go into academic things. Too much <laughs> I'm, I'm a bit slow, <laughs> but I, I would, I'd, I'd love to hear more about it from you, though, in like the oh. simple version. Well, I can only do simple because I don't really understand it. Um, <laughs> and I suppose queer theory is, um, academically speaking, it's how we think of uh, sexuality and gender and the way that it is seen in society. And that queerness is, I suppose, an act of rebellion. Uh, so it's an act of pushing boundaries of what is defined. So like we perform a particular, uh, in a particular way in order to fit with a particular expectation. So like masculinity. And that I suppose queerness fits in when you begin to not fit those normal performative measures. Um, and there's probably people who are experts in queer theory listening to this and being like, no, he's so wrong. What is he talking about? But like from casual reading, that's that's kind of what I've, uh, that's kind of what I understood of it. Um, but I think that performative thing is interesting because Callum and I, when Callum was sort of sounding me out to see if he wanted to be on the podcast, um, <laughs> we both talked about how we will sometimes paint our nails in a provocative way in certain circles. So for instance, I did some teaching to GPs recently uh, online for our medical school uh, around the impact of bias in education and bystander skills. So how can we stop uh, acts of discrimination when we see them? And I made sure that I'd painted my nails before I went and gave this talk because um, I think even that small thing challenges some of those people who come and see it. Uh, mm. And it kind of pushes them a little bit. Um, and I think that is that performative thing to a degree um, and that act of rebellion. I, I think um, for me, at least, even like when it's used as a slur, queerness has always been about talking about people who sort of exist outside of what society wants them to be doing. And I think ever since I, you know, before I discovered sort of what queerness was, I felt so constrained and so sort of pushed to be something different. And, and to be a little personal, I was really unhappy with sort of who I was. And then I found what queerness can mean and the liberation it can bring. And it felt like it was opening up to being able to live in an authentic and happy way. And I, I think for me, that's what queerness is, is that having that authenticity just to be who you are. And it's completely unrelated to medicine, I guess, in that way. <laughs> but that's just what it is, is always meant for me. And some of that has been deliberately trying to annoy people by painting my nails because I know of the looks I get in the street and I know the comments which people make. But 
a lot of it is actually just being about sort of comfortable and happy with who you are and living in a way which doesn't hurt anyone else but fulfills you. Mm. And I, I feel like that is related to medicine. I was exactly going to say that. I was going to say, I don't think that that's unrelated to medicine. Yeah. I was just, yeah, like, that. I feel like that is the whole point of, like, queerness and professionalism. Like, is what I'm doing, is how I'm expressing myself actually harming patients in any way? No. So leave me alone and mind your business. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And I always, like, say this jokingly to like my flatmate and my friends and everyone i just i always just say i feel so sorry for straight guys they're so constrained by um <laughs> by what society says um they should do and i just for me the moments i just like let go of the rules of society and what i'm supposed to do and when i'm supposed to do it i haven't felt more free i i feel like i can express my emotions and what I'm thinking in so many different ways and I don't feel confined and constrained by anything so yeah I definitely agree with you that queerness is an act of rebellion and just like rebelling against what society deems to be normal I'm I'm also going to directly contradict myself immediately having thought about it that I said it's not related to medicine um (laughs) (laughs) because it absolutely is and you said that you've not like noticed it's ever harmed or been bad for a patient my experience is that when it when a patient has interacted with sort of visible queerness it's only ever been positive so there was a patient who came in with their child and they saw um, I have like a pride windbreaker basically and they saw that on the wall and they said to their child oh look you love all that sort of stuff too that's great and it was very much a way of being like I'm okay with this we can talk about this this is something which is fine and you know I think actually as a doctor or as a medical student to be able to sort of provide that visibility and that representation and that security for people makes me think actually yeah queerness is related to medicine and I was wrong 20 seconds ago (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk a little bit more about this in just a moment, but we're just going to take a quick break to hear about an offer available to Sharp Scratch listeners. As a junior doctor, you want the latest clinical information at your fingertips, anywhere, anytime. That's why, funded by Health Education England, NHS Education for Scotland and NHS Wales, all NHS staff in England, Scotland and Wales have free access to BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice provides the latest evidence-based information structured around the patient consultation to help you treat patients with confidence. It includes differential diagnosis and treatment algorithms, videos of common clinical procedures, important update alerts for evidence changes, over 500 medical calculators, links to local guidelines and nearly 500 patient leaflets. Create your free account today by visiting bmj.com forward slash UK access. Okay, back to the show. So we thought in order to do the conversation justice, we owed it some context and wanted to get a better idea of the history and the legacy of the LGBTQ plus issues within medicine. So Callum had a little chat with Dr Tommy Dickinson, reader in nursing education and head of the Department of Mental Health Nursing at King's College London to find out more. Tommy's written a book called Curing Queers, where he interviewed men who were institutionalised in British mental hospitals to receive treatment for their queerness and the nurses that were involved in these treatments. And the first question that Callum asked was exactly what those treatments were. There were numerous treatments that were used to cure uh, homosexuality. 
um, and the, probably uh, one of the most famous or infamous is uh, chemical castration or oestrogen treatment, which Alan Turing received. However, my um, book and my work specifically focused on aversion therapies. There was electrical aversion therapy and there was chemical aversion therapy. So electrical aversion therapy involved the patient being treated as an outpatient and they could sometimes be treated up to two or three times a week. Uh, and they would go along to the hospital and they would um, sit in a room, usually off the ward, uh, on a wooden chair. And they would be looking at images of uh, men on a projector screen in front of them. And their feet, their hands or their calves would be attached to electrodes. Um, and then they would receive an electric shock in conjunction with looking at the images of men. Um, that shot was invariably given by the nurse or a clinical psychologist, although sometimes the shocks were given um, automatically because the, the man's penis was attached to a penis transducer and if there was any change that was detected, it was given automatically as a result of that. Then the pictures would be changed to females, to naked females, and then they would be they wouldn't receive an electric shock. So it was essentially based on Pavlovian classical conditioning. You was to associate the pain with the image of the naked man in front of you. That was electrical aversion therapy. Um, chemical aversion therapy was much more invasive. So the patient was was um, was nursed on as an inpatient on a psychiatric ward, and they would be admitted and taken straight to their room and in that room there would be nothing except a bed there would be no toilet no basin nothing uh, there'd be a bed and then there'd be pictures of naked men pasted all around the room with a strong light shining on them and every two hours the nurse would get, come in and give them an injection of apomorphine which was a very very powerful emetic made them violently vomit um, and that would go on for up to sometimes up to 72 hours the patient would be given this this emetic this apomorphine every two hours even through the mid the night they would often be kept by um, awake by means of amphetamine and you can imagine you know after a couple of hours let alone three days you were laying in your own elimination and that yeah. was the whole point of the treatment you was to associate that with the images of the naked men around you after the three days, the men would be allowed to come out of their room. The nurse would clean their room and change the images to, to women, to naked women. And then they would be given an injection of testosterone and then encouraged to go back into their room once that had become therapeutic um, and masturbate over the pictures of the females. So... Yeah, they were the, the treatments that were given on the NHS um, during the 1950s wow. up until the mid-1970s. And um, what sort of scale are we talking about? Sort of how many people were forced to undergo this? Yeah, that's a really good question. So it's been estimated that, that about a 1,000 people have received that treatment. Um, and again, it's an estimation. Um, and that might seem quite a small number. Um, but I guess, you know from what I've described the impact of those treatments it was it it was it was very invasive treatment um and without an there was there was no evidence base for it I mean that's the main thing there was very very limited or, or 
you know, weak evidence base for it. Um, you know, and there was no ethical guidelines or principles. It's impossible to sort of imagine yourself back in that scenario, but I just think I'd be so utterly terrified of it happening to me. What sort of atmosphere do you think it created for people? We can look on this for the benefit of historical hindsight and go, oh my God, that was absolutely barbaric, and there's no denying it was. However, I think it's important to look at the social, political and legal context at the time. It was illegal. Homosexuality was illegal in England and Wales until 1967. Um, places like Northern Ireland, Scotland would, would take a lot longer to, you know, up until the 1980s to decriminalise homosexuality. It was also a mental illness. So it was a mental illness up until 90, considered a mental illness up until 1990. The World Health Organisation didn't remove it as a classification of mental disorder until 1990. The um, American Psychiatric Association removed it in 1974, though, but, and treatments did peter out. However, it was still classed as a, a mental illness until 1990. And then you also have to factor in the massive stigma that, were ta- that was attached to it. There was a huge, you know, um, h- huge stigma from the family, from, from media. You know, so new- you have newspaper articles at the time that are kind of promoting these treatments. So it would, yeah. There's no denying it would have been absolutely, you know, petrifying. But the majority of the people that the majority of the men that I spoke to, and interviewed, actually put themselves forward for the treatment because of the turmoil they found themselves in. They were so desperate to change who they were, and this treatment was kind of was being promoted as as you know as this kind of it, it it's effective treatment is going to cure you. Um, you know, a lot of the men were quite, initially, were quite enthusiastic about the treatment. Um, and, you know, it was only once they started having the treatment that they kind of appreciated that this is really is quite horrendous. And, and you mentioned there that um, obviously being gay was considered a mental disorder as well. That seems to me like sort of one of the seminal moments of interactions between queerness and the NHS is that pathologization of, of who we are. Does that, it must do as well, but stick out to you as sort of a really important um, reason why we are where we are today? Absolutely. I think, you know, there's no denying that the way the, the medical profession, you know, treated the LGBT community. And although I'm talking about men here, these treatments were given to women as well. Um, you know, I didn't interview any women, you know, women came forward to participate in, in my study, even though I did open it to them. And it was given to a much lesser degree to women. Um, one of the reasons I kind of argued for that was because lesbianism has never been illegal within the UK criminal justice system. So that's possibly one of the reasons. But I absolutely do think that this sticks out, you know, that, that particularly for the older LGBT community who remember that. Um, and they remember the way that they were treated there's you know understandably some kind of hesitancy um, for the to to the older LGBT people to the medical profession as a result of this Um, so yeah absolutely it it is a standout moment in um, the interactions with queerness and and the medical community. What are some um, other moments that would stand out to you? I guess another moment would be um, the HIV and AIDS crisis. And I think here, the medical profession somewhat redeemed themselves in terms of their um, support of the LGBT community. 
I think what happened then, there was a flattening of the hierarchy and that kind of a challenge to that medical paternalism. Um, and that, you know, you, it was no longer I'm the doctor or the nurse and I know best. It was much more of a collaborative approach. And so I think it, it really was the genesis of, of that expert by experience. A lot of the, the kind of particularly younger men, gay men, were as well read and up to, uh, and, um, up to date on etiology and treatment options for their HIV and AIDS uh, diagnosis as the medical community. So it was much more of a kind of collaborative working together to kind of beat this this um, this pandemic. So I do think at that point they they, they kind of somewhat redeemed themselves because there was a flattening of and a, and a challenge to that medical paternalism. Do you feel like the history of sort of queerness and medicine is um, still impacting medical school and the careers of doctors today? Um, I think so. In in I think it's changed. I think it's getting better. Um, you know, so certainly, but I think, so certainly, you know, um, I'm a, I'm a nursing, so I teach nurses, um, and I make sure that we do include, you know, LGBT health issues. But you know, that, so that nurses are aware of those. But I think it's. You know, there's no, um, I guess that's because I've got a vested interest in that and I think it's important. You know, I think it, it, so it largely depends on somebody kind of driving that agenda, whereas I think what there, there needs to be is more of a national agenda, that this is a really important aspect of, of, of nursing and medical education that needs to be in the curriculum. So quite a heavy interview in parts, but also very powerful. What are our thoughts on the panel? I have many thoughts. As I don't know if you guys noticed, I was typing away furiously, not furiously, um, very excitedly. Um, it was a very important interview and something that everyone, please don't skip it, please. I hope you actually listened to it. And just talking about um, conversion therapy and... I think I, I would like to introduce our listeners to um, this concept that I, I don't think um, many people may be aware of, but is the concept of whiteness and the structures that um, produce um, white privilege. And the way I like to think of it is um, whiteness is thinking about like this ideal human being who's a sit cishet white male who's like middle class and the further you stray away from that ideal so if you have a disability if you're a person of color if you're a woman if you're trans then the more likely you are to be discriminated against the more um pushed down on society you are and just like hearing the stories about the conversion therapy and um the and like the chemical castrations and all and all that things i think we need to like ensure we're looking at things through an intersectional lens that the same thing the same entity that enabled all those things to happen back then is still very much present here and now but it's just it's just rearing its um head in very very different ways so i I think i i sort of alluded to this earlier but arguably you could say that um gay white men at the moment are more closer to that ideal if that makes any sense yeah completely makes sense um joe what were your thoughts listening to that and reflecting on what kody just said as well i 
have found that some of the times the people I struggle most to engage with in narratives around challenging things such as racism are those people who consider themselves liberal and have already um, experienced forms of discrimination. So what you're saying, Coyote, about like the, the kind of the cis white gay man, I have found some of those people to be the most reluctant to engage with self-reflection and with participation in considering what biases they bring. Because they're like, well, I've experienced homophobia. I know what this is like. It's like, well, no, you don't. You Not only do you not know what racism is like, you also don't know what it's like to, uh, to experience transphobia. Um, you don't know what it's like to experience other forms of discrimination. And we have to be really open to listening to the stories of our people around us, whether that's people in our community or whether that's people who are also marginalised. Um, and the intersections of those two things. So how do you experience being queer and black at the same time? Um, so I completely support that. I think you're completely right to bring it up. So I, I made some notes um, during that Um I think the first thing I was really struck by during the story that we heard then was how the idea of trauma is conflated with cure. So like how creating creating trauma and, and the associated feelings with that was in some way a curative measure. And I just think that's that just really shocked me, I suppose. Not that I haven't heard those stories before, but it was just the first time I'd really thought about the idea that actually what they were doing was causing trauma and then hoping that that would in some way have a positive outcome. So, yeah, the the idea of what people who are older and queer have lived through, I think, is really important, though. And I think it's really nice to see that brought up in that interview. Just to jump in um so I found that interview really hard to do. And then also I found that people having to hide parts of themselves also like hard to hear. Because that's definitely something which I know I do. I've, I've mentioned before that I changed my voice. So like even even doing this podcast, I can feel a certain voice which comes out of me in order to be more acceptable. But there was a, there was a load of things which sort of went through my mind during that. I mean, I think firstly, the fact that these doctors and these healthcare professionals, they were political actors when they were doing this. And then the moment when we come up and say, well, actually, okay, now be political and support the rights of minorities, they're like, oh, actually, hang on, I'm a bit uncomfortable getting political here. And it's just so hypocritical and I, 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 it doesn't make sense to me. And then the other things which come to mind are the fact that conversion therapy is still legal in the UK. You know, it's still not banned. And not a lot of people realise that. And then the final thing was... Being a non-binary person, being a trans person at the moment is so hard. Like the amount of stuff which you see online or you get directed online or even stuff which I've had in my inbox just from someone I don't know. And it's pretty relentless. And I say that as someone who is very mask presenting and, and very white. So like I've got it a lot easier than a lot of people. Um, so what Coyote says also then really hits home in that actually we can try to talk about this and try to help people but we need to make sure that we're involving those people and we need to ask those people to come into the conversation and we need to amplify their voices and sometimes we need to say well actually this isn't this isn't the place for me to say something I need to take a step back here and I need to bring someone else into the room to do this and I think that's where we don't we don't do that well in the UK and I don't think we do that well in the NHS especially yeah I agree we don't do it well 
at all like i think anyone who follows me on <laughs> i was about to media... say kid did you want to comment on that <laughs> <laughs> like no i those i recently just um did a youtube video about diversity merchants that's what the, that, that's what i call it like like something i just repeatedly um keep on seeing is like people who are who always say oh, i'm into diversity what does that even mean to start with but they repeatedly find themselves on panels or giving evidence for reviews for things so, like actually this doesn't really concern you like it's great to have an ally but i don't need you to speak on my behalf like why don't you do you not have any black friends do you not have are, are, are there no like lgbtq people in the nhs that you could ask to do this instead of you so that and it's something i just keep on seeing and i was like why are you doing this like why don't you amplify someone else's voice no i think that's a really interesting way of thinking about it actually we'll discuss a little bit more about the future of queerness and medicine in just a moment but that'll be right after this how much do you care about indemnity right now probably not a lot you're still a few years away from really worrying about claims and complaints from patients but being part of medical protection is about a lot more than just indemnity we can be there if something goes wrong, but we're also here to help make sure things go right too. We're the only medical defence organisation that protects doctors all over the world. From London to Brisbane, Cork to Cape Town, 300,000 members benefit from our expert advice and support throughout their career. During your years at medical school, your membership is completely free. You'll get training resources that can help you become an even better doctor plus a dedicated student team there for you when you need it most. And when it comes to your elective, you can trust in our international experience to protect you wherever you choose to go. It's no wonder that 90% of medical students in the UK choose to be part of medical protection. You can find out more at medicalprotection.org. Okay, back to the show. So I think there's also something to be said about the sort of pattern recognition that we're taught in medical school in terms of spotting things like diagnoses in multiple choice questions. And they kind of really enforce stereotypes. And Joe, I know you've been doing a lot of work on changing the curriculum. So what sort of stuff have you been doing and why do you think that it's so important? Yeah, so yeah, this is something that I am really passionate about. And so one of the things, and it's, it's sort of linked to what we, we've just discussed, one of the things that we do in order to make sure that we have authentic, and so I, I try to use the term authentic representation in our, in our curriculum, because a lot of the time, um, when we diversify medical curriculums, what we end up doing is the people who sit in a position of power are the people who write like the curriculum. And those positions, as Cody was saying, who sit in the position of power tend to fit a certain standard and they think in a certain way. So in order to create authentic cases in our teaching, what we try and do is engage with community organisations or people with lived experience who come in and tell their story. Um, and how can we build that? So it's one of my favorite and least favorite things about my job is that I went into this because I really like teaching. I actually do very little teaching. Most of what I do is introduce people who I'm then letting them do the teaching. Uh, and <laughs> so I'm really excited whenever like something comes up that I'm like, oh my God, I can teach this. This is great. Because uh, most of the time it is, yeah, it's introducing people who have lived experience, who are from communities, who are talking about what is happening in their community. 
So when it comes to that, one of the things that we try and do with our cases is to have that authentic voice. And I think that helps us to then consider what harmful stereotypes are we um, are we using in our curriculums. So some of that I make really obvious. So for students, it will be really like for the learning outcomes, it will be signposted and linked to what I do and to my my helical theme. So the, the, the teaching that I, I run within the medical school. And sometimes I don't link it at all because... And this is kind of what I try, I, in my head, I call it this normalization narrative where what I try to do is bring in people to cases where it is disconnected from the protected characteristic or whatever that they're presenting with. So the fact that somebody who comes in and they um, they use a wheelchair um, and we're talking about their sexual health. It's nothing to do with the fact that they have a disability, right? It's just the fact that, um, you know, they are a sexual person and they want to talk about their sexual health. So when a, um, we have a LGBTQ plus representation in our curriculum, some of the things I try and make sure that we do is that it's not connected to that person's queer status. So that, yes, there is pattern recognition and there is importance in acknowledging that they're at-risk communities. But at the same time, somebody presenting may have... Uh, you know, a condition totally disconnected from the thing that medical school has taught you to kind of label and like pick out immediately for that MCQ so that you can jump straight to the right answer. So, you know, for instance, in our paediatrics teaching, having uh, representation in different families, you know, having two, two, uh, two mums bring their kid to the uh, clinic as part of that case-based learning. And that could be completely disconnected from the case. The students could explore it and say, actually, no, it it could be connected because two mums are are more likely to live in poverty because of the the gap we see in wages. So um, that could impact on the child's health. So there are ways to explore it. But I suppose what I'm trying to do is, is bring it in in a way that normalizes queerness in our curriculum so that, yeah, okay, there will be times when we we see patterns, but also times when those patterns are irrelevant and actually dangerous. Um, and certainly as a medical student, when I went to <laughs> when I went to sexual health clinics as a student, it was a really interesting experience for me because all of our curriculum taught that, you know, uh, the people presenting to sexual health clinics were LGBTQ plus people, HIV, gonorrhea, uh, you know, all this kind of stuff. Actually, what I saw was queer people presenting to have checkups and to look after themselves. And I saw straight people presenting going, oh my God, pus is coming out of down below and I don't know what to do. And like, they weren't kind of proactively looking after their health. But that was never mentioned in our curriculum, right? That was never talked about, that actually the queer community is much better at using doing that. So yeah, I suppose that's some of the stuff we're trying to do and I think is deeply important. Yeah, I think that's really amazing and important work. Cody, Callum, what sort of changes would you both want to see reflected in the curriculum? I mean, I I guess I'd like to be included throughout the curriculum. I would like to be mentioned in, um, like what Joe said, just sort of the relevant moments, like knowing when is sexual orientation or gender identity relevant and when it's not relevant is really important and if you just try to pigeonhole it into one thing you're never going to understand that as a doctor and it means you're not going to be comfortable with it and you're not going to be appropriate with it 
Because most times you see a queer patient, they're going to come into you for an issue which is not related to being queer. Like 99% of the time or whatever, I've made that up, they're going to have a stubbed toe or a cold like everyone else has a stubbed toe or a cold. So knowing when it's important and when it isn't, I think is a huge thing. And I think you can only do that if you bring in when it's relevant and also know when it's not. That was kind of circular. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Cody, what about you? Yeah, I just want to like agree with everything that both of you have said. Like you're 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 pretty cool people. You and Joe. Um, <laughs> then it 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 genuinely does seem like um the teaching like and stuff to do with like queerness and stuff at Bristol is going amazingly, and 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 it sounds like that's down to you, which is absolutely fantastic. And um yeah, I I'm just thinking yeah, like it is important. Like like you said, um, Callum, without an evidence base, um, that queer people will come in and have other conditions. And again, like you said, Joe, when I'm talking about like um, getting sexual health checkups and stuff, my straight friends, my straight guy friends, oh my God. Like you'd be so surprised by like some people in their mid twenties who are like, oh, I've never had one before. It's like, what do you mean you've never had one before? Like going every six months at least what's wrong with you um so i think it's really interesting and then just sort of thinking again about other groups that aren't necessarily um thinking about sexuality just thinking about um people with disabilities like wheelchair users so one of my favorite people in the world um dr hannah barham brown she's um she's she calls herself a role model um and she's nice. done quite a <laughs> she's done quite a lot of work about wheelchair users not being able to get smear tests because they're in wheelchairs and they aren't so and um some gps and stuff or like um obs and gynae people don't don't have equipment to get them on the tables to to actually examine their cervix and i and i'm just thinking like you said callum this is one of the one of the moments where you need to start actually thinking that about um their disability or the queer or, or in in terms of this conversation people's queerness like where their queerness or their disability is actually stopping you from doing your job so yeah i think it's a very interesting and important conversation and i think we should be teaching i guess it's not something you can really teach but um, encouraging people to explore these ideas from really early on so that way they can um, fine-tune their later clinical practice. I, I think that's a really good example because it brings in multiple things like we talked about of that sort of intersectional approach because we know that women who have sex with women are less likely to go for smears anyway. And then a disabled person who's had bad experiences and is put off from going to see medical professions, they're less likely to go and see a healthcare professional. You're already operating at a deficit of trust. Like you're already in a bad situation and you've got to be able to sort of pull yourself out of that because otherwise that patient, you've lost them. So this is this kind of brings up something else that we need to start doing in medical education. So we've spoken quite a lot on this podcast about, um, I suppose, more internal reflections um, of thinking about how uh, people are treated by individuals. But 
There is also how people are treated by systems, right? And how systems generate bias and how systems also generate health inequalities and perpetuate them. And some of our roles as health professionals has to be challenging the existing systems and saying that is not good enough. That cannot continue. Um, so it's interesting you've talked about the deficit model there, Callum, because uh, or, or deficit, because there, there is this idea of the deficit model, which I'm a huge fan of. And the deficit model um, is often used in educational spaces, and I use it in education when I, I talk to staff. Um, and it describes that when we see some sort of uh, kind of lack of, I guess, attainment or lack of engagement or whatever, we put the emphasis or the blame for that on the individual themselves. Um, so most commonly, it comes out of, so if we take the example of women in positions of leadership in organizations, right, um, we see very few women who make it to senior management levels in organizations. And a lot of organizations will go, okay, well, that must be because we don't have women with leadership qualities in our organization. So we're going to run a women's only leadership program, right? That will really help them. But that's ridiculous, okay? They don't have a lack of women with leadership qualities. What they have is a system that is built to stop women from succeeding. Uh, it's exactly the same when we look at the attainment gap or the awards gap that affects black and minority ethnic students in the UK. Often our emphasis is put back on those students and their study skills and things like that. Instead of saying, actually, no, the organisations that we have um, are not designed for them to succeed. But this can apply to healthcare as well. So we do have healthcare systems where the deficits, so for instance, the lack of engagement with services, the emphasis is placed back on their community. Now, it might well be that education campaigns for that community are helpful. I'm not saying they're not, and I'm not saying that using those aren't an important thing to do. But simultaneously, we have to think about what are we doing that prevents people from engaging with healthcare services. And a good example of that is... Um, cervical screening for uh, for trans men. So one of the issues that we have and one of the reasons that we have low uptake of this and we have increased levels of cervical cancer and it's something we try to explore in our curriculum is this um, the fact that when you change your sex on the NHS register from female to male, the system itself cannot handle the idea of a man having a cervix, right? That It can't do that because it wasn't designed in order to, to take that into account. So that means you're dropped from screening programs. So you're not caught up for your screening. And as a result of that, those people have an increased right chance now of dying like at the end of it. That's, that's what it can result in. Now, we can do all we want about engaging that community and saying, you do need to come in, you do need to be pushing this. But at the same time, why don't we change the system, right? Why don't we do that? Because that has to be how we will truly eliminate health inequality is if we start re-examining our systems and our systems that perpetuate them. So... Um, I suppose one of the things that students are listening to this or, or professionals are listening to this, you know, qualified doctors or healthcare staff, you have a role to advocate for changes in systems as well. This isn't just about examining your own bias. This is about challenging other people and it is about challenging the systems around you. So if it is that when um, 
A good example is GP practices. So you go in and they have those kind of like quick registration things where you go in and you put your date of birth and your name or whatever, your first letter of your name in, and they go, yeah, this is you. Yes, I'm here for my appointment. Now, some of those will use, uh, ask the question, are you male or female? And for some trans people, they don't know how to answer that on the system. And so they will go over and they will uh, have to have a conversation with the receptionist who says, can you please go and use the automatic check-in? And they say, no, I can't because I, I need to, I want to talk to you about it. And they say, well, why can't you do it? And then they're at a risk of having to out themselves in a public space. Um, and so I know GP practice who, who have changed that. And so they don't use male and female as part of their um, check-in in system. Uh, so making changes like that are how we create inclusive spaces in healthcare. Um, and it's something I think needs to be brought up more in medical education that students and our future doctors need to be advocates for that kind of work. Sorry, I do rant think... over. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, think... I loved the rant. <laughs> I do think that students need to be aware of um, the power they have as well, though, on an individual level. So I was, um, as a patient, I've been in situations where the doctor has, you know, been misgendering me or using inappropriate language towards me, and it's been it's been actively uncomfortable. And a nursing student sat in the back of the room and said, hang on a second here, this person doesn't want to be spoken to in this way. And for me, that was, you know, I, I'm coming across as a very emotional person here, again, quite emotional. <laughs> so <laughs> students have the opportunity to make these differences. I've been in clinics before where, you know, a, a trans patient wasn't having their pronouns used correctly. And I simply asked them what their pronouns were. And the doctor then also picked up on that and was like, oh, hang on a second. I can do something to help it. So students have the ability to make an impact for these patients. Yeah, very much so. And this is where uh, if, if if people listening and are wondering, how do I do that? Have a look at what bystander skills are. Uh, there are useful ways of thinking about how you can break that down and how you can act in positions of allyship when it comes to that scenario. Uh, because very rarely are you completely powerless um, in, in any given situation. Yeah, and I think that's a really good takeaway message for today's episode. That's all we've got time for on Sharp Scratch today, but a big thanks to our panel and our guests. We are really keen to do some more episodes on allyship and inclusivity as we think these are really important conversations to be having. So do get in touch with us if you have any thoughts about these episodes or any reflections on today's episode. I'd love to hear them. If you would like to hear more from us, please subscribe to Sharp Scratch wherever you get your podcasts and in two weeks' time you'll be notified of our next episode. While you wait for the next one, do check us out on social media. We're BMJ Student on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And let us know what you think about the podcast using the hashtag SharpScratch. I'd love to hear about your ideas for what you think we should cover later on in the season. It's also really helpful to us if you can leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts as it helps other med students find the show. Until then, bye from us. Bye. 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 Bye.